0: Well, this morning, if you've got your Bibles, we're going to Psalm one thirty three, and as I mentioned, we are in our next to last of the Psalms of Ascent. So one thirty three, then one thirty four next week, and then we'll be back in the Book of Romans the following. Um, you'll remember that the Psalms of Ascent, as I introduced them in the beginning, are offered uh, to Israel as a kind of a song book, a kind of poetry book to be recited as travelers, pilgrims were making their way to Jerusalem, usually for one of these great religious festivals. So Psalm 133, coming near the end of this series of Psalms of Ascent, uh, you are within the sort of final days of that travel to Jerusalem as you came across to this Psalm. It may have been that you were making that final ascent up to Jerusalem, just about ready to arrive at that final destination, having gone from Psalm 120 to Psalm 134, where we'll finish up next week. And what theme does Psalm 133 choose to focus us on as we make this sort of final ascent to Jerusalem, that destination? Well, their famous words, the beginning of Psalm 133, how good it is when brothers dwell together in unity. Um, That's a fairly well-known line from Psalm 133. And probably if you know any of the Psalms of Ascent, this is one that often is quoted. Matthew Henry, in his sort of famous commentary, wrote... If we did not see the miseries of disaccord among men, we should not think this psalm we should think this psalm needless. In other words, we know that we need this psalm because um, as is true of his day and our day, you look around and you find out how rare it is that people dwell together in unity. All around us are these, to use his phrase, miseries of discord among men. We know what it is in our own time. And it's not just in our day. It's sort of like out there in the city around us. We find it to be true in many of our own church experiences. But when we think back over our days in churches, our days amongst brothers and sisters who believe, so often those same miseries of discord are evident in the way that we worship amongst one another in churches. And so the Psalms turn our attention as we near that final destination to this place. It's good when brothers dwell together in unity. Psalm 133, I'm going to read the Psalm to you. The Song of Ascent of David. Behold how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. It is like the precious oil on the head, running down on the beard, On the beard of Aaron, running down on the collar of his robes. It is like the dew of Hermon which falls on the mountains of Zion. For there the Lord has commanded the blessing: life forevermore. Psalm 133. There's really, as we've been looking at these psalms so often in Hebrew poetry, there's these sort of controlling images or similes that make up this kind of poetry. And in Psalm 133, we really get three of these. Sometimes it's two, three, we'll look at it as three. Three of these images that describe what it's like for brothers, for sisters, for God's people to live in unity with one another. The first, probably most obvious one, is this image of oil. Verse 2. It's like that precious oil on the head running down on the beard. The oil being described here is olive oil, which the land of Israel was known for in ancient times and still is today, um, all over the region of the Middle East and even exported out to other parts of the world. Olive oil from this region in ancient times was known as being one of the luxuries, one of the extravagance of life. In fact, when I was in Israel, uh, we went into a gift shop in Bethlehem and they had a whole wall of olive oil from uh, Israel. So, of course, I brought back one of them and I wish I would have brought back four or five because it really is unbelievable olive oil. And they were known in ancient times for being a producer and exporter of this sort of luxury item. Uh, in ancient times, this olive oil symbolized celebration and blessing and richness because of its its difficulty to produce, the longevity it takes to grow the olive trees to produce this olive oil, and how uh, the limited area of climate in which it could grow in Israel. So the world sort of looked at this olive oil from this region as a kind of luxury. You might remember lines like this one from Psalm 23. He anoints my head with oil. It's the same image of God's blessing over me, pouring this olive oil out on my head. Or take this, these lines from the book of Job. Um, it's a part in Job where Job is reflecting back on better days, remembering when things were good. Oh, that I were as in the months of old, as in the days when God watched over me, when his lamp shone upon my head, and by his light I walked through darkness As I was in my prime, when the friendship of God was upon my tent, when the Almighty was yet with me, when my children were all around me, and then I love these last two lines, when my steps were washed with butter, and the rock poured out for me streams of olive oil. Um, I have no idea what it means for your steps to be washed with butter, but I know enough to know if it involves butter, it's usually a good thing, not something bad. Uh, It sounds more like something from the Ozarks than from ancient Mesopotamia, right? My steps washed in butter. But this same image that out of rocks, the rocks laying around in this dry land, streams of oil, this olive oil come flowing out. In other words, what Job is doing is he's imagining how great life was. My children around me, my health, my prime oil flowing out of the rocks you get a sense for this image this extravagance of oil one of the ways this olive oil was used in the ancient world is it was used to revitalize skin and hair which people still do to this day you can still sometimes you'll walk through the kiosks in the mall and they'll be selling you uh, salt from the dead sea and olive oil from the middle east right and they're these beauty care products we still do the same thing with it today but in ancient times, a person with great wealth, uh, oftentimes a person might only bathe a few times a year, but they would use olive oil to sort of replenish their hair or their skin. You could imagine if you lived in the kind of hot, dusty, sandy, dry climate that Jerusalem is in or areas around it, this luxury of being able to rehydrate your skin and hair with olive oil was one of the luxuries of the most rich, the most wealthy. Most couldn't have afforded that kind of luxury. But this image here in Psalm 133 of that costly oil being poured out over a person's head, running from their head down into their beard, was a sign of immense cost, a sign of kind of luxury and enjoyment, a deep gratitude, a sort of uh, a a once-in-a-long-while experience that's being described, not an everyday practice. The second image then is this image of the beard. The psalmist turns the image of the beard as a second one, describing how that oil ran down through the beard of Aaron down past his collars. Now there's a couple ways of looking at this image. Um, it could be describing how the oil runs through his beard down through his collar or as often as the case with poetry, it could also have multiple images. it may be describing Aaron's beard grew down beneath his open collar. in other words, Aaron was known for having Having a large beard. In the ancient world, beards were a mark of kind of masculinity, but also a sign of vitality, of life, of a person being healthy and fully alive. Even in Egypt, so you can go look at many of the ancient drawings or or sort of carvings, and you'll see throughout Mesopotamia, these kings always had large beards. For whatever reason, in Egypt, this was not the trend for men and masculinity. It was a clean-shaved face. But still, the pharaohs would often tie on ceremonial fake beards whenever they were governing or in front of the people. You've seen them, the sort of beards that would extend down from the chin. It was also common for men, when they were defeated in battle to have their beards shaved off of them or sometimes ripped off as a sign of humiliation or their conquer. Or sometimes you'll read about, even in Scripture, men during a season of grief, shaving off their beards to symbolize loss that they've experienced. So two ways of reading this image are possible. The oil running down through Aaron's beard but it also turns our attention towards this image of Aaron's beard itself, this Old Testament image of authority and blessing and vitality, Aaron, of course, being the first of the high priests. So when the psalmist says that brothers dwell in unity like a long beard, that may sound a little bit strange to us, but the ancient audience would have understood that what was being described in this song psalm was a sense of health and vitality and the blessing of God. Life at its fullest, if I could use a really cheesy sort of way of putting it. The third image was this image this image of dew falling on Zion from Mount Hermon. Verse 3. It was like the dew of Hermon which falls on Mount Zion. Dew is oftentimes an image in the Bible of a gift from heaven. If olive oil was viewed as a kind of way of replenishing the dryness of the climate that many of Israel lived in, how much more so is this image of dew falling in the morning? If you lived in a place that was scorched and hot and sun-soaked and you woke the next day to find instead the coolness of dew on the ground, it was a kind of refreshment that was rare in places like Zion, Jerusalem. Uh, some of you in the last few weeks, you know, it's been brutally hot through parts of July, and there were some mornings where I would get up, and you go outside, and it's already 80 or 85 at like 7 a.m., and you're saying, okay, we're obviously in the middle of summer. There's no coolness this morning. But this last week or so, we've had this kind of rainy spell go through, and even this morning, I was noticing I went out to let the dogs out at 6.30, and there was a breeze, and there was dew on the ground, and it was cooler, and you get this sort of refreshing coolness of the moment. Um, If you lived without air conditioning, you enjoyed and savored that moment probably more than we do. And in the ancient world, this image of dew was seen as a kind of gift from God. The ultimate image is of that coolness, that moisture, that dew coming from Mount Hermon. Um, if you were with us when Dr. Nunley was here and we uh, were talking about geography of the Holy Land, we did sort of a Saturday seminar. One of the things we specifically talked about was this verse in Mount Hermon, because Hermon lies to the far north of Jerusalem. It's up on the border of modern day Israel, um, and even in, in um, ancient times, it was considered the northern part of Israel. And most of the year, it's a snow capped mountain, one of the few in the region. And the whole area around Mount Hermon, because of the way it cre- creates uh, rainfall, is much much greener than the rest of Israel, in fact, when I was there, um, it rained the entire day we were touring this area, which seemed like an inconvenience as you were outside. but Dr. Nunley kept saying, this is exactly how you want to remember it right Green with rain, the moisture because this is so often how it 's characterized throughout the Bible for a parched and hot Israelite living in Jerusalem. Herman, Mount Hermon was a kind of image of that cool, refreshing water. Um, to put it in perspective, if there were water bottles in the ancient world, they would be springs of Mount Hermon, and they would have Mount Hermon drawn on the front of it like we do, right? Uh, it's this image of freshness and water, Mount Hermon. But what's interesting about this final image, um, you could imagine it's realistic for a person to get olive oil and pour it over their head, it's realistic for a person to grow a beard. But it's impossible to experience dew from Mount Hermon falling on Jerusalem. Mount Hermon and Jerusalem are miles and miles apart. There's none of that moisture that falls outside of some of it that makes its way into the Jordan River and eventually flows down in river form. There's no dew from Mount Hermon that falls on Zion, on Jerusalem. They're two totally different geographical regions and climates. So the final image of this psalm suggests something miraculous something that's unique, something that couldn't be experienced or forced or manufactured, but something that's drawn up in this imaginary image of the psalm itself. What if all of the coolness, the dew, the gift of Hermon could fall on Jerusalem? That true unity between all believers is ultimately, like that dew from Hermon on Zion, something that we can't manufacture Something that doesn't happen just naturally when people show up together, but we realize is a kind of gift, a rarity, something that takes a kind of divine intervention to make it possible. What struck me about this psalm is that it doesn't offer any steps by which we be more united with one another. There aren't lessons in this psalm or proverbs for how you can go about building a better community. It doesn't tell us how we're supposed to get better at getting along with one another. Uh, Blessed are those who dwell in unity. So now go do this, do this, do this, and you'll have that blessing. That's not how the psalm works. Just that the experience itself is miraculous and costly and full of life and good. When we think of unity and peace between people, we tend to think of how difficult it is to bring two sides together. That's normally how we frame most of our conflicts. One person thinks one thing, another person thinks another thing. How do we figure out a reconciliation and produce unity when people are in division? Us versus them. How can we bring these people back together? But the psalm introduces into this mix what's normal in life, this division, a third component. The way that unity is experienced in this psalm is not people just deciding we're going to get along. It's this experience of dwelling together, being together. The image, of course, from this psalm and from its place in the Psalms of Ascent is Zion, to dwell together in Jerusalem. Now, Jerusalem is not just an important city politically in the Bible. It's the place of God, where the temple is, where his presence was, So what's being described here is not a reconciliation between two parties. This is how we bring conflicting people into unity. What's being described is how those people of discord are able to find unity within the presence of God, in God's city, dwelling together in Zion. And here's why I think these images, oil running down, a beard growing down, dew descending from heaven, while all of these images have this connecting theme of coming down, this language of descending is so important over and over in the psalm, it forces us into a position of receiving. Unity is not about striking a deal or negotiating equitable terms for both parties so they can leave feeling like they got a little, lost a little, but in the end it was fair. Unity isn't about some kind of program the church creates or some social campaign. You can't get the kind of unity that's being described here with marketing tactics or under the threat of punishment if you don't come in line. What's being described here is the reception of a gift. It's about recognizing a shared position of receiving. Receiving together. Coming into the room with our differences our opinions about one another, but all of us being in the same position of turning our attention to God and receiving from Him, and so in that reception, dwelling in unity. Receiving the oil that is poured out over us. That's the image, after all. It's the same image from the Psalm. He pours the oil over our heads as we receive its gift. Waking up to receive the dew that's miraculously falling overnight from Hermon, of all places, on Jerusalem. We didn't produce it. We didn't go out there and crank any lever that produced the dew on the ground. We woke up and received it. And even this image of the beard, um, there's a great G.K. Chesterton line, you can't grow a beard in a moment of passion. Um, The point is, you can't grow your own hair either, as strange as that may seem. Hair isn't a matter of effort. I got, a, I got a line coming for you just in a minute. So, uh, Hair isn't a matter of effort. It's just received. And for some of you, you would like to receive a little bit more of it. Thank you very much, right? But you can't do anything about it, which has always struck me. It's yours. It's your body. But there are things even about who you are that can only be received, can only be accepted. And so it is with all of these images, the oil, the dew, even the hair. They're images of receiving. So it is with community and the unity that is between men and women as they dwell together. True community is something we receive, not something we create. Some of you at this point are saying, absolutely, if everyone would just act like I think they should, I would be happy to receive that community anytime. Um, You know, I'm always quoting to you from Dietrich Bonhoeffer's book, Life Together. It's probably one of the most important books I've ever read, particularly on what it is we do together when we come together. But he opens that book with a quote from this psalm. He talks specifically about Psalm 133. And Bonhoeffer writes this later in the book. Christian community is like the Christian sanctification. It is a gift of God, which we cannot claim. Only God knows the real state of our fellowship, of our sanctification, What may appear weak and trifling to us may be great and glorious to God. Just as the Christian should not be constantly feeling his spiritual pulse, so too the Christian community has not been given to us by God for us to be constantly taking its temperature. The more thankfully we daily receive what is given to us, the more surely and steadily will fellowship increase and grow from day to day as God pleases We daily receive what is given. That's what Psalm 133 is describing. Not, if I could just find the perfect group of people, I could dwell with them in unity. Not, if everyone would just act like the Christians they're supposed to be, then we could dwell together in unity. Or, if we could all just get on the same page with the same vision, and if the pastor would get us all in line with the same theology, then we could dwell together in unity. No, the image is, if we could all turn our attention to God and receive each day what he puts before us with gratitude, then it fundamentally changes our disposition and our view of those very people that were annoying us the day before. That like it or not, these are the very people God has surrounded me with as a gift for my good. And as I learn to receive what God is giving, I learn to receive my brother and my sister for who they are. The reason I think this coming down language, the oil, the beard, the dew, is so important is because this pilgrim who's reading this psalm as a part of the psalm of ascent is surely at that final stage of going up to Jerusalem, beginning that final ascent to the city, the destination. It's easy to think that this entire pilgrimage, this life spent towards that final destination of God's presence, all of the energy and discipline that it's taken to get to this place, that it's all been about what I've done, what I've achieved, how I've persevered. And that final goal, the image itself, the city, look at how great this city is that we've built, this temple we constructed, this worship that we perform and put on. But just as the pilgrim is going up, he's taught by this psalm to turn his attention to what is coming down, not what he achieves, but what he receives. And that's a really important thing that I think this psalm is doing at this point, just before the psalmist reaches Jerusalem. As you find yourself getting obsessed with your own going up, your plan, your path, your direction, your expectations, your desires, the hard work that you've put in and the payoff that it should earn you, your evaluation of the progress you and everyone else around you is making, it's at that very moment that you need this better image of not just what you've achieved, but what's been given to you, what you've received from him. You know, it's no irony that this image of descending becomes one of the major themes throughout Scripture, particularly as we read about God himself coming down to us, descending into human form. Paul remembers it this way in Philippians, which I've always thought of as a passage about how I, as an individual, become more humble like Christ, but rereading it this week, I realized it's really a passage about how we get along with one another By learning to receive him. Paul wrote this to the Philippians. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but to the interests of others. This is the golden rule, the second greatest commandment. Love your neighbor as yourself. Have this mind among yourselves. So this is how you do it. This is how you look out for one another in unity. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. You can't miss the two directions. What is Christ doing? Emptying himself, humbling himself, descending into the likeness of man. And what is God doing at that very moment? Exalting him, lifting him up, placing on him the name above every name. If you want to know what it is to be in unity with one another, to get along with one another, to have this miracle that's described in Psalm 133, We do it by paying a closer attention to Jesus. How he came down. How he received. How he humbled himself. And how in that experience, what he found was blessings of heaven poured out on him. God raising him up in vindication. And Paul saying that we too have this mind like Christ's. You learn to receive him. To see the way he humbled himself and came down for you. You find yourself a long ways towards receiving others, humbling yourself to receive them. And that experience is not to anyone's belittlement, not that you might be a carpet for others to walk over, always losing your way in the argument. Instead, what God says is when we as believers share in this, we are vindicated and lifted up. Receiving good things, miracles from heaven itself. How good it is when brothers and sisters dwell together in unity. Let's close in prayer this morning. Heavenly Father, we know how hard it is to get along. In this world, in our nation, God amongst our own friends, in a community of people at a church, with family something about this human experience, our own need for our own way to be heard, that God constantly introduces conflict into these places. We realize that we're as much a part of it as we are having been injured by it. So we come to you this morning saying that, God, we want this experience that you describe, this blessing of unity, this sense of belonging and being accepted, and being a part of something together. God, we sense and know that what's being described here is really a part of that final day when all of creation will be brought into unity before you, when all of us will have our lives and our purpose set straight in worship to you, when that new heaven and that new earth descends and all of this conflict of sin is done away with and we dwell in peace and in rest In the enjoyment of creation in one another. But on this earth, we know how hard that is. So we turn our hearts, we turn our lives towards you this morning and say, by your Holy Spirit, would you shape us to be that kind of people? Pour out that blessing, that unity on us, God. And let us humble ourselves like Christ did for long enough to receive it, to be raised up, to be vindicated, find in our midst unity that only your spirit can work in our midst god we know that to do it takes an emptying of ourselves a learning to receive first your salvation and your grace and your mercy so that by that receiving god we can turn and receive those around us but we need your spirit to guide us to do it to teach us to do it so we worship you this morning We do it as a way of practicing and demonstrating our humility before you and our willingness to receive what you are doing in this place. And we pray that as we do that, as we worship you, your spirit would work that affection in our hearts for one another, that reception in our hearts for one another, that we might be of one accord, that we might bear one another's burdens, that we might look out for each other's interests that we might receive that miraculous blessing of a people who dwell together in unity by your grace, and by your mercy. It's in your name we pray this morning.